Uh, well, good morning again. Um, today is the sixth Sunday of Lent, and as we said earlier, it is Palm Sunday. And so today we are going to wrap up uh, this series and this story um, about Abraham and Isaac. It's a story that we've been reading, as you know, if you've been here for a while, we've been reading through the entire uh, season of Lent, which means if you happen to be new um, or visiting or this is your first time today, uh, we're going to read a story that's going to raise all kinds of questions and you're going to be going like, what about and why don't we talk about this? Um, we have been talking about all those things and so uh, you could go back and listen to the last five weeks and, um, and see all the different angles that we've been exploring this story from. Um, our, all our messages are online so you could go back and do that. Um, but today, let me just say up front before we jump in, uh, I don't have anything super practical to share today with you. Um, I don't have any great stories. I don't have any really funny jokes. I know that's going to be a shock to you. Um, I don't have any great lines that are tweetable today. So Jillian, I know you usually live tweet all of my sermons, but you're not going to be able to do that today. No, I'm joking. Um, I don't have any tips for you to live uh, your best life now um, I just want to share with you one simple truth. And it's a truth that's buried uh, deep in this story of Abraham and Isaac. It's actually a truth that's hidden behind a Hebrew word that I want to teach you today. Um, and it's a truth that's at the foundation of our faith and our lives. And in many ways, it's a truth that is at the heart of what Holy Week is all about. So let's take one more look at this story. Um, in Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1, it says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, I want to draw your attention. We talked about what God is asking of Abraham a lot, but I want to just draw your attention today to the place where Abraham is called to go. I mentioned in the very first week of this series uh, that this region called Moriah is where hundreds of years later, the city of Jerusalem will be built. Uh, the city, of course, that Jesus enters that last week to celebrate Passover, the city where Jesus is crucified on Good Friday. Uh, but scholars aren't totally sure what this word Moriah actually means, right? It's the name of a place, we know that, but what does the place name mean? Because place names often have an important meaning, um, e even in our own culture, right? For example, uh, Spanish settlers, when they arrived in this area, they noticed all of the red uh, sandstone in the foothills, like you see at Red Rocks Amphitheater, um, and they said that it was the color of red, color de rojo, or color rojo, which is where we get the word Colorado. That's why it's called this place. In fact, there were even some springs at the foot of a large mountain south of here, and there was a town that was built at the foot of that mountain, and they named it Colorado Springs. And then just maybe a mile north of here, there's a little river, a little creek that runs, and the Arapaho Indians that originally lived here noticed that there were chokecherry bushes all on the sides of this creek, and so they named it Cherry Creek. You see, place names have meaning, and that's especially true 
in the Hebrew Bible. And if that's the case, then what does this word Moriah mean? Well, we're not certain, but there's a few other Hebrew words that might be part of the root of this word, and there's a couple of different options, and one of them is really compelling or intriguing. Moriah is very similar to the Hebrew verb ra'ah, ra'ah. So let's all just say that together, ra'ah, all right, it sounds strong, Uh, but it just means to see. It's the Hebrew verb for to see. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't Ra'ah does not sound like Mariah, right? But um, in Hebrew, the way it works is oftentimes they have these verbs, and instead of adding things to the end of words like we do in English, they usually add prefixes to the beginning of words, and that slightly changes the meaning of a word. So if you take any Hebrew verb and you add an M sound at the beginning, or in Hebrew it's the mem uh, from the alphabet, you add this M sound at the beginning, it often turns a verb into a noun. And so... Moraah or Moriah could mean something like a place of seeing. God could be saying, go to the place of seeing or the place where things will be seen. Some ancient translators, the oldest Latin translation and even the oldest English translation of the Bible translated it, go to the land of vision where you'll see something. Or I love what John Goldengate, he's an Old Testament scholar, he translates it this way, go to the place of epiphany. Because epiphany is when you see something new, something that maybe you've never seen before, or you see something in a new and a powerful and maybe in a mysterious way that you've never seen before. And part of the reason the scholars think that Moriah is about a place of seeing, this place of epiphany, is because this verb, ra'ah, actually shows up a number of other important times in this story. Let me show you. Uh, remember that um, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, and we're told the next morning Abraham gets up early, and he gets his supplies ready, and he gets his servants ready, and his son, and they pack up, and they head out. And then it says in verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Literally, it says he lifted his eyes and he ra'ah, he saw the place of seeing, this place of epiphany. And so he leaves his servants behind at that point and him and Isaac continue on to the mountain. And then in verse 7, it says, Isaac spoke up and he said, To his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Uh, Last Sunday, we talked about this exchange, and um, I even had a cartoon that I showed you. Do you guys remember that? There was a joke. It was amazing. If you weren't here, you missed it. Uh, But here's what I want to point out today, and it's something we all miss in English. The verb that Abraham uses is actually the verb ra'ah. Literally, Abraham is saying, God will see to the land. God himself will see to the lamb. God will see our need, and he'll take care of it. God 
will see to it. And it's in this moment that we see that Abraham deeply believes that God is going to meet him in the moment of sacrifice. God will see him. God will see his son Isaac. God will see what Abraham is doing. And God will somehow see to their need in that moment. Now, Abraham has no idea how God is going to see to it. That's why it's going to be a place of epiphany, right? He can't see how God will actually see to their need. He can't even see a way forward to the other side because remember, he's called to sacrifice his son. And, and for the most part, we focus on the fact that it's his son and how could he ever do that? And of course, that's a huge part of the story. But we forget the even wider part of the story that, that God has made all of these promises and Abraham has to be thinking, God, you promised that you would give me this son. And then you promised you would give me a future and you would give me a family and you would give me descendants and I would have grandsons and granddaughters. And then these descendants would do something big in the world. You would create a nation through this son and this nation is going to bless all people. It's all going to come through this son, Isaac. So how in the world will God fulfill all of those promises and do all of the things he said he would do and give me all the things he said he would give me if I sacrifice my son? It makes no sense, right? And yet Abraham is clinging desperately to this idea that somehow God's going to see to it. I don't know how, but somehow God will see to it. And that's really what faith is. The writer of Hebrews, hundreds and hundreds of years later, writes this in the New Testament. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, right? That's Abraham in this moment. He cannot see how God is going to make this work, right? He can't see how any of the promises will be fulfilled, right? If he comes to this altar and he sacrifices his son, he can't see how he's going to have any kind of family, any kind of future, how God is going to do any of the things that God said he's going to do, but he believes and he trusts, even when he can't See the way forward. He believes and trusts. Somehow God is going to take this sacrifice and he's going to turn it into hope. Somehow God is going to take this loss and he's going to turn it into a future. Somehow God is going to take this death and turn it into life. And he doesn't know how. And he can't even see how. But he believes and he trusts that God will simply see to it. Have you ever been in a situation like that in your life? Maybe not as, as desperate or as dramatic as Abraham, but, but where it feels like you're, you're groping in the dark and, and you have to move forward, but you just can't see your way to the other side. You can't see how this situation can turn out. You can't see how whatever it is that you're losing or whatever it is that's hard or difficult, how God can somehow turn it to good or make good come out of it. That's Abraham. But he trusts and he keeps going. And he and his son Isaac go up to the top of the mountain, and there he places his son on the altar. And his son Isaac does not resist. We talked about that last week. His son is probably an older teenager by now, 
Abraham's an old man. He could have easily resisted. He could have overpowered. He could have refused to go along with whatever was happening. But in the same way that Abraham trusts in God, Isaac trusts in his father. And just as Abraham reaches for the knife, and just as he's about to do what God asks him to do, a messenger from God shows up and he calls out, Abraham, stop, right? Don't do it. Don't go through with it. And then look at what happens next. Abraham looked up. And there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its thorns. He went over and he took the ram. A ram is just an older lamb or sheep. He took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. We don't know why Abraham couldn't see the ram before. If the ram was thrashing around in the thickets, perhaps he could have heard it, but perhaps Abraham just wasn't paying attention or he didn't he just couldn't in the moment with everything else going on. But, but it says he lifted his eyes once again and literally he saw. Ra'ah. He saw that God had seen to his need. He saw that God had seen to his son Isaac. In that moment, in a way that Abraham never could have seen or anticipated or known would happen. And then it says this. So Abraham called that place Yahweh Yireh, which just means Yahweh or the Lord sees to it. And to this day, it is said on Yahweh's mountain, it is seen too. Now on one level, <clears throat> this story is uh, as troubling and as challenging as it is, um, I think it can potentially give us hope. That when we find ourselves in circumstances in our lives where we simply don't see a way forward, we can trust God will see to it. Or perhaps we find ourselves in those situations where we're called to make some sort of sacrifice or, or let go of something, and that's going to involve great loss, and we can't see in those moments, how can this loss become a gain, right? How can this sacrifice turn into fulfillment? How can death turn into life? Abraham reminds us that, in fact, we won't be able to see it as we walk up that mountain. We'll have to trust. And whether it's time or money or, or possessions or dreams or relationships or people or a future, we might have to let go of something without seeing how God is going to fill the void, without seeing how God is going to meet that need, without seeing how God can give us the life and the future that we've been so deeply desiring and that we've wrapped up in the very thing that we're asking to give up, the very thing that represents the life and future. In those moments, we cannot see the way forward. All we see is the loss. All we see is the thing that we have to give up. And we have to trust in those moments of loss and sacrifice that God will see to what we need. Now on a much deeper level, I think 
This story ultimately points forward to Jesus. And it is about what Jesus does during Holy Week. He's welcomed into Jerusalem as a king, right? Because the people love him. They love what Jesus provides. He gives healing. He he gives wholeness. He gives grace without judgment, which is so different from all the other religious leaders. And they're excited about the future that Jesus is painting. Jesus says a new kingdom is coming, a, a new way forward, a new future where God's blessing will be on all people. But in a very complex series of events, by the end of the week, The very people that have been singing Hosanna just like we were a few minutes ago have turned on Jesus. And they crucify him. He's forced to carry the wood on his back. He's bound and nailed to the wood on the cross. And on the Passover holiday, When a lamb is usually sacrificed for the people to remember all the ways that God has saved and rescued them in the past, Jesus allows himself to be sacrificed. Now, there's all sorts of details we could try to unpack in how all of this goes down, right? The leaders of Israel are are threatened by Jesus' power, and, and they end up turning the crowds against Jesus, and then they collude with the Roman authorities, and then they're able to get one of Jesus' disciples to even betray him. And then all of Jesus' disciples end up fleeing, right, and, and, and running in fear. And, and when I read these stories in the gospel accounts, and the gospels always slow down at this point, and it's like they're saying, pay attention to what's going on. And as I read these stories, I'm always asking, why does Jesus let this happen? Why does Jesus not flee from Jerusalem? Why does Jesus even come to Jerusalem in the first place, right? Why does Jesus, if he's the son of God, why doesn't he just zap all of the bad guys when they show up to try to arrest him? Why does Jesus end up offering his life on the altar of the cross? And it's because God was up to something so much bigger than anyone else could see at the time. It's because God was seeing to a problem that was not just a problem of his disciples. It was not just the problem of the Israelites. It was not just the problem of all the people living at that time. It was humanity's problem. A problem that we could not see to ourselves. Do you know what we all need? We all need forgiveness, we all need reconciliation, and we all need life after death. We we need forgiveness because of all of our failures. The Bible just calls our failures sin, but that's what they are. They're just failures. Failures to live the way that God created and called us to live. Failures to love God, to love other people, to love ourselves, to love this world that he put us in, right? And when we fail... And if you're anything like me, this happens on a pretty consistent basis, right? When we fail, we carry guilt and shame because of our failures, and we need forgiveness. 
We, we also need reconciliation because our failures fracture our relationships with everything around us. It fractures our relationship with ourselves. It fractures our relationship with other people. It fractures our relationship with the very earth that we're called to take care of. And more than anything, it fractures our relationship with God. And we need reconciliation in all those ways. But we also need life after death. And I don't just mean the, 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 the going to heaven after you die sort of life after your death. I mean in all of the loss and death we experience in our lives. Maybe not even physical death, but in all of the ways that we experience loss and death in our lives. We need to know that there's life and there's hope on the other side, right? Because if there's not, we're always gonna live in fear. We're always gonna live in in struggles of power. We're always gonna avoid sacrifice or pain or loss or death, right? And so Jesus comes and he takes all of our failures on himself. And he takes all of our guilt and all of our shame. And he takes his place on the altar instead of us and he takes death upon himself for us so that we can know forgiveness, so that we can experience reconciliation, so that we can receive life on the other side of death. Jesus sees to all of that in his death on the cross. And so this story of Abraham and Isaac that we have been journeying on opens us up to a much bigger story that intersects with every single one of our lives. And it's really the story that we enter into this Holy Week. And so as we do that, I want to read with, for you one more verse from the New Testament. It's from the writer of Hebrews, the one who said, faith is all about believing when you don't see And then the writer of Hebrews gives us all of these examples from the Old Testament of people who actually did that, who had that kind of faith. They believed and they trusted in God even when they couldn't see their way on the other side. People like Abraham, right? People like Moses' mother who gave him up and entrusted him and lost him and trusted that God would do something on the other side. People like a woman named Rahab who was a prostitute. People like a man named David who became king but was deeply, deeply flawed as a king. But all of these people are people that had so much failure in their lives and yet they also believed that God could bring life from the midst of failure. He could bring life from the midst of death even when they couldn't see it. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and the writer pictures all of these people, all of these examples surrounding us, even in this room today, looking at us, cheering us on, saying, you can trust, you can keep moving forward. We did it, and God showed up. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin and failures that so easily entangle us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, lifting our eyes and seeing Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, 
The one who went before and went first and the one who makes complete all of our little acts of faith. The pioneer and perfecter of faith for the joy set before him. What is that joy? It's the joy of knowing that those who trust in him and follow him, he will see to all that we need for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. This holy week, may we fix our eyes on Jesus. Wherever we are in our journey of faith, whatever we bring to the cross, may we fix our eyes on Jesus And may we remember that when we cannot see the way forward, God will see to it. Let me pray for us. God, we lift up those things that we carry to you today. Whatever it is, we bring our pain, we bring our questions, perhaps we bring a a difficult week that we've had, a difficult year, we bring our setbacks, we bring our failures to you today. And we trust in you and we believe in you and we look to you for the life and the hope and the grace and the forgiveness that you have for us. I pray this in your name. Amen.